0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Daniel Paris, host of New Books in Finance, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Paul Donovan. He is the author of the newly published Profit and Prejudice, The Light of the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Thanks for having me on, Dan. So I understand your, your day job, just so we're all clear, uh, you are the managing director and chief economist for UBS Global Wealth Management. Uh, that is a, a lofty title, but uh, you did want to mention, and I think it's uh, clear for those of us who are in the industry that these book writing ventures uh, are separate often from the day jobs. But in, in your case, uh, UBS has, uh, has been very supportive of your effort, but it is uh, a uh, production of Paul Donovan, not of UBS per se. Is that a fair summary? That's exactly right. Yes. So Profit and Prejudice, the Luddites of the Fourth Industrial Revolution. That title is actually kind of uh, the book, by the way, is coming out as we speak with Rutledge. Uh, for those of you uh, looking for it, uh, the title is has a lot of different metaphors in it and images and references. So why don't we start with that and, and uh, as a lead into the the argument that you were trying to make?
1: Well, I suppose the the central argument is pretty much prejudice is bad for the economy, it's bad for business, which is an argument that's been made since at least the 1950s. I mean, Gary Becker's uh, very famous work on this. But what I am trying to say is actually, um, we are running the risk in the fourth industrial revolution of seeing a rise in prejudice. And I think perhaps more than at any other period in history, that rise in prejudice has the potential to really do very, very serious damage. Because the fourth industrial revolution, it's it's mainly about labor and skills. It's not about the technology. Um, it's the labor and skills which are going to drive economic and, and financial success. Um, and if you are prejudiced if you're if you're a company that's prejudiced or individuals or a society that's prejudiced then what you're doing is undermining the one thing which grants you success you're you're destroying human capital just as in the first industrial revolution the original luddites were machine breaking they were destroying the 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 looms and the spinning jennies and so on that were behind the first industrial revolution. So the prejudice today are effectively destroying the human capital, which is the key to success in this industrial revolution.
0: So one of the things that I like about your book as a historian who works in the capital markets is that you do have a clear historical sensibility as to what's valuable, what's key, what's the kind of the clutch point in any of these transitions in society. And uh, we've had uh, various, shall we say, industrial revolutions uh, where different things mattered, and uh, by it, it's one thing to just say that human capital management matters now i I get that every day through ESG investing. It's another thing to point out, human capital management now matters a great deal more because in the past, we've had these prior transitions in economic development, call them industrial revolutions, call them shifts in technology, whatever you will. but you do you do highlight, I think, for uh, readers who may not be completely familiar with that, the, those prior transitions. Do you want to do a bit of an overview for them just to set the stage for uh, the current fourth? Absolutely.
1: So, I mean, the, the first Industrial Revolution, obviously, was um, uh, focused on the United Kingdom, um, really from, from sort of the, the mid-1700s onwards. And this was uh, essentially about steam power coming in and mechanizing Um, swathes of production starting in particular with the uh, cloth industry and then just sort of uh, moving out from there into more and more and of course that the issue uh, with all of these industrial revolutions and indeed with the current one is that um it's it's not just about the technology it's it's about society changing you get this enormous upheaval um you know, people who had been relatively high social status jobs suddenly find their social status collapsing because the jobs are being done by machine um and they're you know reduced to to sort of manual labor rather than skilled labor in the first revolution. And that's one of the things which drives the Luddites. Um, And you get the shift towards urbanization. But as soon as you get the shift towards urbanization, you start to change food production. And it's interesting that every industrial revolution that we've had so far has also had to be accompanied by some kind of agricultural upheaval um, as people move around the country and ways of doing things start to change. And then we have uh, the second industrial revolution, which is um, more in the United States. Um, uh, There is also um, a second industrial revolution, obviously, in Europe, but it's more about the United States. And this is about electric power, essentially, and transforming the way in which uh, business is done, uh, the factory system, Fordism, the, you know, the Henry Ford model, starts to come in. Uh, and then the third industrial revolution is sort of in the 60s and 70s, and it's all about computer power. It's the microchip revolution. Um, and this is something which creates upheaval for clerical jobs, um, where you start to change the way uh, in which businesses are managed. You get uh, flatter hierarchies for, for many of these roles. Um, it changes the role of women in the workforce uh, in particular. Um, and again, you see wider social changes coming out of this and, and, and greater upheaval. So this is the pattern that we, we see. You get something which initially seems to be sort of a, a fairly narrow area of technology, but the ripple effects of this throughout society are really profound. And some people win and some people lose, as is always the case when you have anything revolutionary going on. Uh, and that's what creates a lot of the tensions. And in each of these revolutions that we have had, like to the, the, the first three, we have seen a rise in prejudice. Um, and we have seen um, a, a lot of, of what we call scapegoat economics, because people feel it's not my fault I'm losing my job. It's not my fault my social status is going down. And of course, on a personal level, it's not. You, you're turning up to work every day. You're doing you know, a, a just as good a job as you've always done. And somehow that's, that's all being taken away from you by complex forces you don't understand. And so the tendency in these periods of upheaval is to look for something to blame. So it's, it's not my fault I lost my job. It's the fault of the foreigner. It's the fault of the immigrant. It's the fault of this minority group or that minority group. And then it all become simple because then you've got a single identifiable cause. Now, of course, it's not the genuine cause. This is all complete nonsense, as, as prejudice always is. But it gives you someone to blame. And that's why these periods of upheaval tend to coincide with scapegoat economics and prejudice. And that's always the, the tragedy of these industrial revolutions.
0: And that's what your book is trying to head off. I just want to kind of tie some of the pieces together. And that's really through the thread of labor, that it, in each instance, the common, former, most numerically predominant form of labor uh, becomes challenged at each transition from agricultural to industrial to service. And now, you know, who knows what the fourth one is, but it's obviously even the service economy is being transformed by technology. To uh, remote, who knows you know exactly how this is going to play out in the next couple of years, but so labor is challenged the how people spend their time, and each time that happens there's a friction cost is is basically your argument and and those that are displaced are uh, very unhappy about it. You also make the argument that the throughout the book that in each of the revolutions the forms of prejudice that you identify are, are kind of bad not just for the workers but for the owners that they're missing out on leaving money on the table, missing out on business opportunities that, that could, uh, from a Becker perspective, profit maximize, uh, which is a contentious point, which we'll return to in a moment. But also, I just want to say, it's not, it's not just from the employee's perspective who are being maybe outsourced or shifted, but, uh, but also from management loses good, uh, lots of good business opportunities owners because they don't see as neutrally as they ought to. You, is that a fair summary of it from the management perspective?
1: Absolutely. And, and so, I mean, effectively, from the management side, you have two problems. So the first is that you know, if, if you are operating in a prejudiced society or you yourself as a, as a firm are prejudiced, you're losing opportunities to make money. So there are examples from the first industrial revolution where um, trade unions, male trade unions, uh, came together to, to say women must not be allowed to work. Uh, and women certainly must not be allowed to work in this industry or that industry and of course that meant that you were no longer hiring the best people for the job because if the best person happened to be a woman the factory owner was not allowed to hire them there would be riots or the factory would be burned Um, and so you're you're obviously then missing out on talented workers um, and that's creating damage to your profits Um, there's a a fantastic example of uh, of this sort of blindness to the cost of prejudice in the United States um, in the 1940s when um, uh, baseball, which, as I understand it, is some kind of inferior form
0: of cricket. um, (laughs) I will respond. Trust me. (laughs) I will get you back for that. Yes, proceed for
1: now. But the the baseball was segregated, which itself is just ridiculous. Um, And in the um, mid-1940s, the rules around segregation ended and some teams desegregated, and other teams continue to be racist in their hiring. And the result was that the teams that desegregated won more games, they had more supporters because it was better baseball, and they made more money. But it still took years, almost a decade, for the racist teams to abandon their prejudice because they, you, you couldn't just see beyond the irrationality and see that you were costing on every conceivable level it was costing you Uh, good business, support, money. Um, So the first set of problems for management is around all of this and and the fact that you're just cutting yourself off from talent. But then there's this second set of of issues that come in, which is around the diversity of decision-making and the importance of having diverse decision-making. If you have got a monoculture, you're going to miss opportunities because you're only thinking in a certain way. And what's more dangerous is you're gonna miss out on risk as well. You're not gonna see the risks around the corner. And that's always the case. But if you are a monoculture in a period of structural upheaval, you're far more likely to do damage to your business because there is gonna be far more risk inevitably in a period of structural upheaval. And if you've got a monoculture, if you're stuck one way of thinking, you're not going to understand the changes that are going on in the world around you, um, that's potentially
0: fatal to a business, frankly. So before I push back a little bit on, on this, and I do it for the sake of argument and podcast discussions, not because I necessarily am going to take the other side of the argument, but for the sake of the discussion. Let's go through some of the, the way that you frame the damage done uh, in the, kind of the second half of the book from, um, either gender perspectives that, that, you know, you have some very interesting stories of, and I'm just going to call it money left on the table because of bad, uh, bad prejudice in regard to either gender or, or sexuality, uh, and aggregate damage done to the economy through, through forms of prejudice. And again, there's a funny, you have a very interesting, not funny, uh, but important distinction in the beginning of the book between discrimination and prejudice, because the terms are interchangeable, and if someone is being, they're not interchangeable, but if someone is being casual and careless, they can be uh, interchangeable. Being discriminating is a good thing. We all have to be discriminating. If the light is red, you do not go through it. If the light is green, you may, after being careful, that is being discriminating about your environment. Prejudice is something else, but it's worth highlighting the difference, because the, you know prejudice and discrimination, negative, discriminating, positive, in a sense, uh, it, it's worth, I think, clarifying some of the terms as we head into what is, in a sense, to some extent, political rather than uh, economic literature.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, discrimination is simply choosing one thing over another, which you know, we do all the time. You, you discriminate between two things means you, you express a preference. A versus versus one. Exactly. Um, whereas prejudice um, is irrational discrimination. And that's the key point. It, it's the fact that you are not rationally choosing one thing over another. There's no good reason for preferring one thing over another, whether it's it's uh, labor or product, or whatever it is, any kind of irrational discrimination um, is prejudice. And of course, we are all prejudiced all the time because um, in a complex world, there is obviously a tendency to use rules of thumb. Um, and a rule of thumb can very easily sway into prejudice if you're so the, the the example i use from from my own family's history um you know, as as a irish immigrants in in the east end of london was uh, all irish people are lazy you can't trust irish people and therefore i won't hire irish people and of course that's just outright prejudice and not true, but if you, know, if you as a as a 19th century business owner or a homeowner had hired you know uh, three people, um, you know one of whom was Irish and that person happened to be lazy, then you just generalise from that into a
0: rule of thumb, and it rapidly becomes prejudice. So, what was the geography of prejudice? I forget that in Bethnal Green in East London. What is the the name of the area that you reference? Because uh, like an area where if someone said they were from that area that they are a different type it's a, a writing in the, maybe uh in the 19th century a section of london that is yeah so it's it's territory. it's the
1: east end it's it's around uh it's basically cockney is the is the dialect and mm. um so it's it's the it's the docks of east london and it's it's stepney and hackney uh, Bethnal Green, um, Cable Street, which is where uh, my, some of my family were from. Um, and they, they were considered a race apart. That was the phrase that was used at the time. They were race apart. And, uh, of course, there were different races in East London. East London has always been sort of this melting pot for immigrants because it was where the docks were. You sort of stepped off the boat and there you were in, in East London. But the the idea was that these people were somehow um subhuman and that of course is one of the critical things when it comes to prejudice is that people are very very rarely prejudiced against people that they know because once you know someone you know that they're the same as you you understand that they you know, they've got the same hopes and fears and emotions and traumas and everything else as, as you're going through um what prejudice tends to rely on is the fact that you don't know the other group, or you don't know them very well, and they are cast as as less than. That's always the point with prejudice. A group is less than another group. And from less than to subhuman um, is, again, a,
0: a very short step. So your book has uh, a kind of chronicles, a- anecdotally, but in, uh, the the anecdotes are sufficient in number and depth that it, it becomes almost empirical, uh, observations about The economic cost of this type of prejudice, again, in different types, in different places, whether it's uh, racial, ethnic, uh, gender, through the the last two centuries, both in the United States, in England, and and mostly Anglo-American, just by the nature of, of your perspective and so forth. And so there, there is a chronicle of all this that this cost has the cost of this exercise. You want to highlight some of the, you know, uh, eye popping stories that that uh, you know jump off the page when you were were doing the research. So I mean, one of the problems, of course, that we've got is that there's no nice Bloomberg ticker you
1: can pull up as an index of prejudice. Um, and for a, a lot of history, part of the issue as well is that. Uh, people don 't like to admit that they 're prejudiced, so when we do veiled um, survey techniques which sort of bring out these these hidden things, uh, you find that people are a lot more prejudiced than they than they like to admit and We see this, for example, or we have seen this in some uh, american elections uh, the the Bradley effect named after an African American um, uh, member of Congress who always polled very, very highly and then would get about five to ten percent fewer votes. Uh, at the actual election because of racial prejudice, um, and people won't admit it. So one of the reasons I was, I was very keen to use narrative economics is because it helps to illustrate the points and people can see, you know, without having to have a, a chart of prejudice, which is impossible to do, you can see some of these issues.
0: It's so mentioned, you mentioned just as an interjection, narrative economics, uh, Bob Schiller has a book out by that name that, uh, yep tries to to make that point about the power of stories, which can be hard to, as you say, pull up on a Bloomberg ticker, but have tremendous import. And an earlier review on the New Books Network was of, of his narrative economics. So uh, I, I am very much appreciative of that approach.
1: No, I mean, and, and Schiller's work is fantastic on this. I mean, it, the, the book is is a must read. Um, and uh, the, the particularly now, um, again, with the the way the fourth industrial revolution is changing our communication, narrative becomes, as it were, even more important. But one of the stories that um, it just struck, it it, it comes through the book in several several, uh, chapters, is the history of, of the UK computer industry. So in 1945, the UK led the world in computer technology by years Uh, america was a was at that time a a very distant second and the reason that the uk led of course was uh bletchley park um and the um uh, the need to crack the german enigma code which had required uh not only brilliant mathematicians but uh computing power as well and bletchley park is this fantastic example of when abandoning prejudice really, really works. So Bletchley Park was actually, by the standards of the 1940s, a remarkably diverse institution. Um, There's this this famous quote that Winston Churchill, when the Prime Minister, when he went to address Bletchley Park, um, uh, as he was leaving, turned to his aide and said, uh, when I said leave no stone unturned in looking for staff, I didn't expect you to take me quite so literally, because you had mathematicians. Um, you had members of the aristocracy. You had post work, uh, post office engineers who worked on telephone systems, who were suddenly you know, the the prototype computer engineers. Um, uh, Alan Turing,
0: people, people who did the Sunday Times crossword very well and very quickly.
1: Exactly, it was you know, do because that's a, you, you you want people who are capable of thinking. Uh, around cryptic clues to, to get the you know, crypto analysts in there. Um, there were women, not as many as there should have been. That was still an area where there was prejudice, but there were a lot of women in there. Um, uh, Alan Turing um, you, was widely known to be homosexual, as were several other members of of the team. And you've got this you, this whole range of disciplines and social classes and gender, sexuality, everything coming together. And it worked brilliantly. Um, and then after the war, um Britain's advantage was just thrown away. And it was thrown away because there was a shortage of skilled computer labor. There wasn't the manpower. And that's the critical point. Because there was the woman power. There were plenty of women who were absolute experts in the latest computer technology because they'd been operating at Bletchley Park. They'd been doing it all. And the British Civil Service said, yes, but but when women marry, we, we prefer it that they leave. And so you had this situation where there was a real pool of talented women who were just thrown away. Uh, and there was an attempt to get around this. So there is a woman called Stephanie Shirley, Dame Stephanie Shirley, who set up her own computer programming company, which was originally entirely women who had been sort of thrown out of of the establishment and they all worked from home on computer programming and it was a fantastically successful company except stephanie shirley when she was touting for business couldn't sign her name stephanie shirley she had to sign her name steve because people would ignore a letter from a woman um, but uh, a letter from purportedly from a man they would pay attention to. And so it's an example. The, the fact that, that you know, Dame Shirley had this successful business shows how much was being wasted. But of course, she was just one woman. If the establishment had not adopted this prejudiced approach, then you know, the UK's lead in computing would have been maintained subsequently. Uh, rather than you know, thrown away with enormous cost to the UK economy, with enormous cost to individual companies within the UK and to the UK uh, government system, the civil service. I mean, the whole thing is just a, a tragedy caused by completely irrational discrimination.
0: Okay. And so uh, her story is quite interesting, takes up a, a, a good vignette in, in the book. And I happen to look her up afterward. She's still alive and well, uh, I, I think older at this point and, and retired and working on philanthropical activities, but uh, still part of the story, which is great. Your, your book makes the argument that in sum, looking both empirically in the past and at any transition point and we're now at a key transition point and it's a transition point that is going to make human capital management even more critical it's always critical but even more critical this time around this is a way of leaving uh, a lot of money on the table it is irrational that that is your summary argument and you summarize it and such you know it's just bad for business the old phrase and i i want to push back a little bit on gary becker and the university of chicago and it's bad for business not in favor of prejudice but in favor of the fact that human beings particularly with all the literature on behavioral finance that has come to light post becker post chicago though it's now also in chicago that you know we now know that behaving irrationally in economic matters not destructively but irrationally is par for the course. Matter of fact, it's far more common than behaving rationally. Behaving rationally in business matters is, is probably a minority occurrence. We all aim for it, but you know, if we hit hit uh, it as a majority, then that's quite exceptional. And that some people in, in divided societies, the United States is unfortunately a perfect example of that right now. So you know what? I don't care. I'm going to leave some money on the table. I don't want to do business with this person, or I don't want to invest in this there is a famous supreme court case about uh, bakers of a cake who didn't want to serve a certain clientele but the uh, civil rights legislation would have compelled them to do so there was a court case i literally don't know how it came out and i should but it, it doesn't matter the point was that someone said i am willing from the perspective of this book uh the baker said i am not interested in their business Uh, and, uh, it opens up a perspective that there will be people who will say, you know, yeah, maybe it's less efficient, maybe it's less whatever, but I have my uh, preferences. They may probably wouldn't call them prejudices, but I have my preferences. I have my community and, uh, I'm a not profit maximizing. I never went to the university of Chicago. I never got the memo about profit maximization and, uh, that is. That, just telling them, hey, you're being irrational, you could leave more money, you could, you know, this could be a bigger enterprise or more profitable, is going to appeal to a lot of people, but it's going to also not appeal to a large, maybe minority or a large segment of the population. What what, what do you say to that kind of pushback?
1: Well, I mean, this, uh, and Becca did mention this, that there will be you know, business owners that say, no, I'm, I am prepared to pay the price. Um, and there will be customers who say, you know, I will accept inferior quality goods or inferior quality service because I am prejudiced. Uh, and you can have employees who will accept um, effectively lower wages because they are prejudiced. Um, so, yes, you can have that. But what is the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is that if you are exhibiting prejudice, it's not just that you're damaging your business you're actually damaging other people. The targets of prejudice become damaged by this. And we see this uh, time and time again, that if you are being told by one group in society, no, you're less than, then you'll stop trying. because you, why would you try? You can't. You're never going to succeed. You're never going to be able to beat the system um, or you will change your behavior in a way which leads to more negative outcomes. So the issue here, I think, is that you may well have a firm saying, well, no, I'm, I'm going to be prejudiced. And I accept that there's a, a cost to me personally. But what you are also doing is inflicting a cost on society because you are. Um, helping to undermine potential skills. You're helping to prevent people from reaching their full potential through the act of being prejudiced yourself. Um, and that is uh, again can be can be particularly damaging over time um, and you starts to do real damage to the wider economy uh, overall. So you have, um, you, it doesn't matter what the prejudice is. Racial prejudices and gender prejudice obviously tend to be very big ones because you're dealing with, with relatively large communities in many societies here. Uh, and if you're creating a situation where uh, a group feel that you know, certain careers are not open to them or certain aspects of business are not open to them, then they are going to change and modify their behavior in a way that is is is. Detrimental to everybody, not just to the business owner deciding, well, hey, I'm going to give up you know, 5% of my profits or whatever it is.
0: I, I, I get your point. I don't disagree with any of that. I think from, we then fall into the difference between microeconomics and macroeconomics. A, a lot of people will say, in that minority of prejudiced agents in an economy, will say, you know, yeah, the macroeconomic damage may be done, but I, I don't care because it doesn't. Uh, I can quantify the micro damage to my business, but I at uh, least near term. But I, I just don't care about the rest. I, I, I just think it's it is asking for a degree of again. This is basically back to behavioral finance or behavioral economics, asking for a degree of rationality among a large portion of the population, all of the population that is struggles with rationality on good days and uh, much of the time really struggles with it. You know, your book is so timely. It was written, I assume, over the last couple of years. I think you said four years, but um, you know the United States as an example, and to some extent, England is just incredibly divided right now, and with people having their own sets of facts and <laughs> their own narratives and their own definitions of what good and bad and prejudice and even profit might be. So, it's it's timely, but it's it's a very uh, difficult argument. You do have a chapter nicely titled uh, "Fighting Back," where you try to you know kind of work on uh, bridging these gaps. To the extent possible again i i think the work is <laughs> you've got your work cut out for you but you want to discuss what you think are our mechanisms for overcoming the economic prejudice
1: so i mean i think it is fighting back i mean you, i'm i'm very clear in the book i think prejudice is going to rise in the next few years um because of the nature of structural change and that, for me, as an economist you know as i 'm trying to identify the winners and losers of the of the fourth industrial revolution, um, you know I, when i 'm looking at a company or when i 'm looking at a society, it is the society or company that is fighting back most effectively against prejudice that is is most likely to become a winner in this situation so that's you know, it's it's not denying that prejudice is going to rise. so how do you fight back um, so I think that there is uh the, the, the role of education is very important. Now, I fully admit that I am, I wouldn't say prejudiced, I am biased on education, um, that uh, education is very, very important to me personally. Um, uh, I'm what we in the UK at least call first generation, that is to say, I was the first member of my family to go to university, it made a huge difference to me. Uh, my father, incidentally, was the second person in our family to go to university. He uh, he good, went on very retired. Him. Absolutely, Very, and, and that's absolutely, a wonderful love story. that's a great story. Um, so, the, the, the value of education, I think, is twofold. Um, firstly, um, if you're educated properly, um, you acquire a flexibility. Um, so, the, the idea that you get your degree by memorizing a textbook. I'm I'm very sorry to say, if you have got your degree by memorizing a textbook, you are a low skilled worker and you don't have much of a future in the fourth industrial revolution because the textbook is going to be torn up in the midst of all this structural change. But if you have uh, learnt rather than been taught, if you have acquired skills which enable you to continue learning over time, then um, you are going to be able to adapt far more readily To the structural changes that are coming ahead Uh, and that therefore reduces the risk of uh, you falling into scapegoat economics because you're able to adapt to circumstances change Uh, and then secondly i think there's there's educating ourselves about other people educating ourselves about minority groups and learning about other people because as I said earlier on, you're very unlikely to be prejudiced against somebody you know because you know that they're not particularly different from you. You know that they're not less than. And so that too is is a way I think of of very much helping with the fighting back. And this is one of the areas where technology I think does help. Um, It's also a a negative don't get me wrong, technology is also making prejudice worse but prejudice can be fought with technology because what we find here is um, the combination of, of parasocial theory and contact theory. So contact theory is this idea that if you know people from a different group, you're not likely to be prejudiced against them. Uh, and parasocial theory is this idea that people form a, a, a sort of friendship with uh people that they see on television or they hear on the radio on a regular basis. And it came out in the 1930s. Uh, There was a U.S. uh, radio soap opera called The Goldbergs. Which was uh, later became a TV show and was about a, a Jewish family in New York, and it was broadcast regularly and it did a lot to reduce anti-Semitism in the United States because people would tune into this um, uh, radio soap opera and they would sort of form an emotional attachment because you are you're getting emotionally invested in the characters and you're hearing about them on a daily basis and you're hearing about their lives and you know the the loves and traumas and and all the rest of it um, and so you become almost trends with them and then that goes on with uh television programs um yeah you know, as i say in the book everybody knows somebody like monica geller um you know the friends franchise actually people became involved and emotionally attached uh, to these characters and now with technology it becomes even more like that that you are uh, able to listen to podcasts. You are uh, you're able to follow people on YouTube or Twitter or uh, TikTok, which I still don't understand, but people uh, form bonds with these people. And of course, it's more likely to be a two way process um, whereby you can interact you know, in the comment section or on Discord or whatever with the people that you're listening to and you get that emotional attachment. Far, far more strongly, and that I think also does help fight prejudice. Because if you are listening to a podcast from somebody who's from a different group to you, and you're interacting with them in the comment section or whatever it is, then over time you get that sort of contact which helps challenge your prejudice, reduce your prejudice. Probably doesn't reduce it to zero,
0: but if it if it chips it away at it, that's that's all you need. What, what about the, what we're seeing a great deal in technology now? And again, this, I, don't, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole as we're kind of uh, nearing completion, but the, uh, again, the United States currently is so divided. What's uh, clear is that uh, media is also divided and evident to me that my media universe, including online and offline media, is so dramatically different uh, than other. I'm not interacting, shall we say, with the other side at all yeah uh, and that's self-selecting. There are a few points of of overlap. Uh, I try to watch the BBC to to get a neutral perspective, but even the BBC is not perfectly neutral and uh, I, I don't know that uh, the two sides in the United States are actually interacting with each other through technology at this point. Instead, they've created not hermetically sealed but substantially sealed uh, communities which amplify and uh, concur with one another. that are already existing attitudes they had coming into the equation. So you got your work cut out for you. Uh, I I think this is uh, the technology You said can cut both ways. Uh, It it can provide bridges, but it also can provide walls to some extent that uh, at least the way it's being played out in the United States at the present time.
1: Well, and, and one of the things that we need to remember, of course, is that whilst technology is very good at bringing minority groups together, so you can create virtual communities, particularly in things like um, uh, sexuality or disability, which, which are just genetically you, roughly evenly distributed across a country. Um, and so you've got the potential targets um, uh, of prejudice who can come together online. And that's absolutely fantastic for these minority groups. But what we need to remember is that the extremists, uh, the extremely prejudiced, are also a minority group. Um and they use technology just as well and and I did um uh, quite a lot of research into white supremacist movements, which was was probably the most depressing two months of 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 the sort of four and a half years I was researching this book um because they are flourishing using exactly the same technology that is helping other minorities, the persecuted. Um, and the persecutors both get the the advantage of this and as you say you know, we we also get this echo chamber that we tend to only hear um you know the the news that we like to hear unless we make a very conscious effort to sort of broaden our horizons and and so forth um, there are i think some mitigating factors to this that you know, when we're talking about things like contact theory um particularly with the younger generation you know, you may be Um, forming uh, social networks and friendship groups online that are away from the news. So you might have people that you bond with over um, a television program, uh, as in a a drama program or something like that, or you may be uh, gaming with with people from different backgrounds. And of course, the, the great thing about this is that a lot of the time, if you are... Uh, interacting with somebody in a chat room or uh, online you're talking to a pseudonym you're talking to an avatar Uh, so you don't know their nationality uh, you don't know their gender you don't know their sexuality you don't know their racial or or religious background you're just forming a friendship with them and that is a way of, of challenging some of these barriers but it's outside of the news flow um, within the news flow you, you run the risk of the echo chamber and that can be quite a big problem but i think for the younger generation um you know there is this potential to benefit from the anonymity that that online can sometimes provide and help to challenge prejudice uh it's not perfect you know, and, and there are some examples of, of prejudice in the younger generation that i give in the book but um, generally speaking, the younger generation is less prejudiced than older generations are. If you look at the World Values Survey, that's been true for for several years. So there are grounds for optimism, but
0: we shouldn't underestimate the task ahead. Let's 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 end on that high note in an otherwise, uh, as you say, kind of a challenging overall environment. That, uh, that technology will be create a means of uh, net positive on the fighting back and, and uh, both good for society, good for individuals and for, for the economics. The book is Profit and Prejudice, The Luddites of the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Paul Donovan, thank you so much uh, for being on the show. Thank you very much for your time, Dan.